your prayers for me uh, and for my back. I'm a lot better, but I'm not yet 100%, so I'm still going to sit on this stool. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would come among us and cause us, Lord, to experience you in such a way that we fear you as we should. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to know you. We pray that you would cause wisdom to enter into our hearts. Cause us to know that our creator is altogether righteous. Cause us to know that we have no grounds for thinking that you will not keep your word. And Lord, so convince us that you will punish wrongdoing, that you will call sinners to account, that we are more afraid of you and more afraid of transgressing and incurring your wrath than we are desirous of some forbidden fruit. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to live like we fear you. And with this fear, Lord, we pray that you would cause a love to abound that gives us that joy unspeakable and full of glory because though we do not see Jesus now, we believe in him and we hope in him. Lord, we ask that you do these things for the glory of your great name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 14. And we'll be looking at this glorious chapter. As you turn there, I would remind you of what Job 28, 28 says. Job asserts there, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Uh, to illustrate this, I want to tell you a, just a brief story about our dog, Henry. Maybe, maybe you've met our orange-colored Vishla dog that is uh, such a delight to us. Um, often, it will be the case that even if we've tried to put the dog away, tried to put him into a room where he can get into no mischief while we are away from the home, uh, it, it almost invariably happens that somehow he gets out, whether he gets let out of that room or maybe someone leaves the pantry door open. This kind of thing happens. And if he is loose in the house and the pantry door is open, he knows where the beef jerky is hidden in the pantry. And he especially likes bagels. And, and we know, we know when we come home that he has been in the bagels or he has been in the beef jerky by the way that he reacts. Because... Because though he has not acted while we were gone like he fears us, when we arrive home, he is acting like he fears us. His head is all slunk down into his shoulders. 
and his tail is tucked up underneath his legs, and he is very reluctantly, you know, coming for the accounting. And I tell you this story because what Henry needs is what we need. We need to act like we fear God before we are called to account. We need to act like we fear God before we hear the sound of him coming in the, cool, in the garden in the cool of the day. As we look at Exodus chapter 14 uh, today, we will see that what Moses said to Pharaoh back in Exodus chapter 9 verse 30 where he says, as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. That is still the case. Even though all the firstborn of Egypt have been struck down, even though they have now experienced all of the ten plagues, Pharaoh and his hosts do not yet fear the Lord. Uh, the first nine verses of this chapter form a unit. And I would draw your attention to the way that Moses has bracketed these, these first nine verses with the references to pa, Pai Hahiroth and Baal Zaphon in verse 1. And then if you look at the end of verse 9, you see again a reference to the people of Israel being encamped by the sea by Pai Hahiroth in front of Baal Zaphon. So we have these first nine verses. And in these first nine verses, the Lord is going to declare his intention for this situation. He intends to get glory over Pharaoh. And before we start into this, let me just say that we might respond to this by saying, is it right for the Lord to set Egypt up in this way? Is it right for him to, to create almost like a mousetrap for the Pharaoh, which is what he's going to do? The people of Israel have, have come out of Egypt and Pharaoh is going to regret letting them go and the Lord is essentially going to say, I'm going to set a trap for Pharaoh, and I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. And, and we, might, we might be tempted to ask, is that right for the Lord to do? And in response, we need to remember how many opportunities the Lord has given to Pharaoh to let the people go and to fear the majesty of his power. And in spite of all of the plagues, and in spite of the death of the firstborn, the Pharaoh has still not learned how to relate appropriately to the Lord. So in verse 1, if, we, if you look with me at Exodus 14, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, so the Lord knows what Pharaoh is going to do. He knows how Pharaoh is going to react in this circumstance. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And then when the Lord says here in verse 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. What the Lord is saying is, I am going to confirm him in his resolve. I'm going to hand him over, as Romans 1 puts it, to these wicked desires that he has. And as a result, Pharaoh is not going to do what he should do. What Pharaoh should do is bow the knee to the Lord and submit to him. What Pharaoh should do is bless the children of Abraham that he might 
receive in turn the blessing of Abraham. And that's not how Pharaoh is going to respond. And so the Lord is going to confirm him in his resolve. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And then the Lord asserts, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And, and as I reflected on this, I, I couldn't help but think that here again, it's as though the Lord is, is like on the playground with the enemy, with, with Satan. And they're choosing teams for the great conquest, the great contest. And it's as though the Lord says, okay, Satan, you choose first. And Satan says, I'll take the superpower of the earth. And the Lord says, okay, I'll take their slaves. And Satan says, and I want all of the, the, the influential culture makers. I want all of the, the, the artists and, and all of the musicians. And I want all of, all of the things that look attractive in the world. And, and the Lord says, okay, Satan, you can have that. And I'll take weakness. And, and now the Lord has liberated the slaves and shown his glory over Pharaoh and over his enemy. Out of the mouths of babes, Psalm 8-2 says... The Lord has established strength, and the baby Moses was born, and in part through the birth of that baby Moses, the Lord has delivered his people, just as back in Genesis it was through the birth of Isaac that the Lord maintained the line of descent, and now the Lord is, is, has brought the weak slaves who are not a nation, they cannot defend themselves, they have no weapons, and he's brought them out to entrap them between the waters of the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh. It's as though the Lord just keeps putting himself in positions where the weakness and the incapacity and the inability of his people are set fully on display. And the Lord says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And then when it says at the end of verse 4 there, and they did so, that's telling us that the people followed his instructions and they encamped where the Lord told them to encamp. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the heart of Pharaoh, the mind of Pharaoh, and his servants was changed toward the people. Uh, incidentally, that, that phrase, the heart of Pharaoh was changed, it, it's almost as though that could be rendered, his heart was overthrown. And it's actually the same phrase that's used in 1 Samuel chapter 10 with reference to Saul. When, uh, the, when um, uh, Saul, his, the spirit comes upon him and his heart is overthrown after Samuel has given Saul these, these signs. So I don't think this means that uh, Saul was converted, nor do I think it means that Pharaoh was converted. I think it means uh, his, his heart was overthrown and he's now going to pursue the course that the Lord has for him. They said... What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Now, Pharaoh at this point needs a wise counselor. He needs someone to say, what do you mean, what is this we have done? This is not what we did. This is what Yahweh did. Don't you remember how he fought against us? Don't you remember those plagues? Look at the graves. Look at the, the dead bodies that were yet to bury. We don't need to mess with these people. But all too quickly they've forgotten. What is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord, verse 8, does exactly what he said he was going to do in verse 4. 
the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I mean, perhaps as the, as the preparations are being made, Pharaoh begins to have second thoughts. Maybe this isn't such a good idea. We were trying to maintain, we were trying to keep those people enslaved, and all those bad things kept happening to us, and, and all the firstborn of Egypt are now dead. Maybe we should just let those people go. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them. And then here's that bracket back with verse 1, encamped by the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. And if you, if you sort of analyze this passage, you've got the geographical references to Pi-Hahiroth, and then you've got the references to the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, and then you've got the Lord's intention, I'm going to get glory, set next to Pharaoh's intention, I'm going to go get those people back. So in that first unit, we see that Pharaoh does not yet fear the Lord, not like he should. And as I was reflecting on Pharaoh's response to this, Psalm 29 verse 1 came to mind. Psalm 29 verse 1 says, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And so I, I want to I plead with everyone here, don't stiffen your neck in response to the continual reproofs of the Lord. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. We're going to see later in the passage that the Egyptians are going are to realize the Lord is fighting for Israel and they're going to they're gonna try to flee. And it's too late. It's too late for them at that point. This morning, it is not too late for you. If you have been stiffening your neck, if you have been resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, leading mercifully, the Lord kindly, graciously, leading you to repentance, and you've been stealing your resolve against that pull of the Lord, let me encourage you to, to quit let me encourage you to give in to the Lord. Don't harden your heart like Pharaoh. If you harden your heart like Pharaoh, you will find the Lord hardening your heart and giving you over to a breaking that is beyond remedy. In verses 10 through 15, we see that the people of Israel do not yet fear God. And you might think to yourself, well, it looks like the ESV groups verses 10 through 14 together. And, and I think that verses 10 through 15 should be grouped together because in verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. And then look down at verse 15. Yahweh said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? And then when it says, tell the people of Israel to go forward, they could render that. Tell the people of Israel to march, because the same word used to render the Egyptians marching in verse 10 is used with reference to the people of Israel being told to go forward there in verse 15. So I think there's a, a bracket around the crying out and the marching around this unit, verses 10 through 15. So imagine yourself in the Israelites' position. Knowing what you know now, 
you know how the story ends. And, and you look that way and you see the Red Sea. And you look that way and you see the army of Pharaoh. Knowing what you know now, wouldn't you be ready to talk like Joshua and Caleb are going to talk on a later occasion? You remember they send the spies into the land and the, the ten of the spies come back with a bad report. And Joshua and Caleb, they talk like believers. They talk like people who fear the Lord. They say, the Lord is with us. He's promised to give us the land. Nothing can stand in our way. It doesn't matter that there are giants in the land. It doesn't matter that we look like grasshoppers in their sight. The Lord is with us. And if you knew how this story ended, wouldn't you be ready to say to Israel, he didn't bring us out here to kill us in the wilderness. He's about to do something stupendous. He's about to do something even more impressive than the plagues that we've just witnessed. Don't you remember how he got us out of Egypt? We were slaves. We had no power to free ourselves. I think that's how, knowing, knowing how the story ends, I think that's how we would want to talk. Here's the issue for us in our lives. In our lives, we are often going to find ourselves in positions just like this, with the Red Sea on one side and the army of Egypt on the other. And we're not going to know the end of the story. And the question for us is, do we fear God? Do we fear God? Do we know God? And have we learned the lessons that the scriptures are constantly trying to teach us? You know, Paul, in Romans 15, when he, he, he's just talked about how Jesus, he, he, he bore reproach. He became the focal point of the wrath of the enemies of God when he left heavenly glory and took on flesh and he, and he bore the reproach of those who reproached God. And he's, Paul is urging the strong in the church in Rome to bear with the failings of the weak and to, to bear reproach like Christ did, to follow Christ. And then Paul says, for whatever was written in former days, this is Romans 15, 4, was written for our instruction that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What Paul means is, when it looks bad, when you're having to suffer, when, when, when the people around you are cantankerous and you're having to put up with their failings and their weaknesses, through the encouragement of the scriptures, you're supposed to have hope. The people have not yet learned to fear the Lord. Look at what they say in verse 11. Here come the Egyptians marching toward them in verse 10. They cry out to Yahweh and then they say to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? That you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're not about to die in the wilderness, are they? And it would not have been better for them to remain slaves in Egypt. And... There were moments when they were mad at Moses, and they did say this to Moses. There were also moments when they were celebrating the, the, the fact that the Lord had raised up Moses and sent him back to Egypt. They, they were rejoicing. They were bowing their heads in worship. So they're inaccurate in their remembrance. 
and they're faithless. And they're talking as though the Lord is not going to deliver them. I think it is so important for us to get this because we don't, as, as I said a moment ago, we don't know the future. We don't know what the Lord is going to do in our lives. But we have so many moments like this. And it's as though the Lord is saying to us, I'm going to set you up in a situation that is going to allow you to do what Paul talks about in Romans 5, verse 3. Not only that, not only do we, 5, 2, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. I'm going to put you in situations where you have the opportunity to live like you know me, like you believe me. And once we're through and out of those situations, we're going to look back and we're going to wish that we had responded like Moses. We're going to wish that we feared the Lord, that we trusted the Lord, and that we were ready to say like Moses, look at Moses in verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not. You see that they feared greatly, verse 10, but they're fearing the wrong thing. They're fearing Egypt, not the Lord. So Moses tells them, fear not. He doesn't mean don't fear at all. He means don't fear Egypt. They do need to fear the Lord. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This is the way we want to talk. We want to be those who are ready to say, look, if the army of Pharaoh comes and drives us into the sea and kills every last one of us, we will die for the glory of God. If the army of Pharaoh comes, we will die fighting against him for the Lord's name. That's how we want to be. And, and this is only going to come if, if we get it, that whatever was written for former days was written for our instruction, that through the inter- encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Again and again, the Lord talks this way, that he's going to fight for the people. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 30. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Deuteronomy 3, verse 22, you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. There are so many statements like this. Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then, you know Romans 8, 28, this is where this is all building. He's working everything together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, but also 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is how we want to respond to all these opportunities to boast in the hope of the glory of God in the midst of our afflictions. We want to walk like people who have heard Jesus say, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to march, to go forward. Now this next unit, 
in verses 16 through 23, uh, this is going to contain this, this, this miraculous event when Moses is going to lift up his staff and the waters are going to part. So verse 16, the Lord says to Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Moses has never seen anything like this before. Moses has not heard the story. Moses is given what amounts to an absurd command. This is absurd. Lift up your staff and divide the sea. Moses has to obey that command by faith. If, if Moses leans on his own understanding and thinks to himself, well, that's not going to do any good to lift up my... I mean, I can't divide the sea by lifting up my... I'm, come on, nobody divides the sea. Nobody does this. It's not going to happen, is it? It's only going to happen if Moses believes and obeys. The Lord continues in verse 17, again, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. You notice it's not the Egyptians will know, Moses, how faithful you are. Or the Egyptians will know, Moses, how powerful your staff is. Or the Egyptians will know, Moses, how significant this people. No, it's not, not about that at all. The Egyptians are going to see the glory of God. And then verse 19, this is, this is beautiful. It says, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So there are two figures here. You've got the angel of God, and then you've got the pillar of cloud, two separate things, and then you've got two verbs. Both, they're both described as moving. The angel of God moved, and the pillar of cloud moved and stood behind them. And, uh, you know, Moses, he, he doesn't have, at, his, at that point in in salvation history, a full revelation of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. But I think that the Holy Spirit has inspired Moses such that he has written up this account so that, that we can naturally understand that this, this angel of God and this pillar of cloud, it, it's, it's relatively easy to identify uh, God the Father and, and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And, and you know, Jude is going to say that Jesus led a people out of Egypt, so it seems that Jesus was present with the people, leading them out of Egypt, and, and so God is present with the people, and these, these two figures, the angel of God and the pillar of cloud, moved from before them and stood behind them, verse 20, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Uh, earlier in the, in the service, in our call to worship, we, we all said together the words of Psalm 34, verse 7. You, you don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to stick a finger in Exodus 14 and look at, at Psalm 34, 
I think that it is profound what David says here. David says, the angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And I think he has in mind Exodus 14, verses 19 and 20. But notice that David is not saying something like, the angel of the Lord encamps around someone really important in salvation history like Moses, or someone really important like David. No, he says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And, and it's as though David is saying, let me take this narrative and let me apply it to everyone who fears the Lord. And everyone who fears the Lord can be confident that the angel of the Lord is going to encamp around them and deliver them on the basis of Psalm 34, verse 7. So it's, it's remarkable to me how, how David, it's, it's as though he says to all the people of God, this can be yours. This experience that Israel had coming out of Egypt, this can be your experience. Well, how do I access it? Fear the Lord. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So I would, I would urge all of us, we need to learn the fear of the Lord. And, and if you ask me, well, how do you do that? How do you, how do you learn the fear of the Lord? There's nothing better than meditating on what the scriptures tell us about how God responds to those who transgress. Think deeply on that night when the destroyer passed through Egypt. And, and contemplate what it would be like to be someone who doesn't fear the Lord and to find your firstborn dead before you. Think deeply on the fact that the Bible communicates very clearly, Romans 3.23, the wages of sin, sorry, sorry, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death and everybody dies. We need to fear him. And the only way to learn the fear, you won't learn the fear, the fear of the Lord I don't think, by listening to secular music. You won't learn the fear of the Lord, I don't think, by you know, being entertained by movies or television or something like this. You will learn the fear of the Lord only, I think, by reflection and meditation upon the scriptures. As we continue in this passage, uh, it's almost as though Moses wants to present this deliverance at the Red Sea as a flood-like deliverance. So he's going to use a word here in verse 21. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, which you remember Genesis 8-1, right? Uh, the Lord caused a wind to move over the earth, and the waters begin to recede. So now the Lord is sending this strong east wind and made the sea dry land. That same word for dry land is used in Genesis chapter 7 verse 22 to describe uh, the, 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 the waters covering the dry land in that, in that episode. But here, as a result of the strong east wind, the waters were divided. So there are flood overtones there. We're going to see more as we continue. Verse 22, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them. 
on their right hand and on their left. So it's, 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 it's just almost mind-blowing to contemplate this, to contemplate the waters heaped up like a wall on their right and their left, and they begin to pass through the midst of this, this wall of waters on either side on dry ground below them. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So uh, the Lord tells Moses to stretch out his hand at the beginning. Then Moses stretches out his hand. The waters are divided. The people begin to pass through. And then here comes the army of Pharaoh. Verse 24. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down. You see, you see how the text seems to be associating the presence of the Lord with the pillar of fire and cloud. It's as though Yahweh is there in the pillar of fire and cloud. And again, I think with our, with our whole Bible understanding of the Trinity, we can understand how God the Holy Spirit likely was present there, but you know, Moses doesn't have that, so he just knows Yahweh is somehow there in the pillar of fire and cloud looking down on the Egyptian forces, and he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Verse 25, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily, and at last the Egyptians get it. They, they finally understand, but at this point it's too late. The Egyptians said there in verse 25, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. It's like finally they, they realize we are in big trouble. He is too much for us, and he is for them against us. They should have gotten that after the Nile was turned to blood, right? The first plague. And if not then, they should have gotten it after all the firstborn of Egypt lay dead. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. So you can see how Moses is depicting the Lord actively. It's as though the Lord has picked up the army of Egypt and hurled it into the sea. And then verse 26, this, the, this expression is an exact match of the expression in Genesis chapter 8, verse 3, where we read that the waters returned, you know, and, and, and the dry land began to appear again. Here, Moses, I think, communicating that there are these points of contact, these similarities between the way that, that Noah and those with him on the ark were delivered through these waters of judgment in which all their contemporaries died. And now the people of Israel are delivered through these waters of judgment in which their enemies, the, the army of Egypt, is, go is going to perish. So the waters returned, and then the next word, and covered... That's the exact same word used in Genesis chapter 7, verse 20, to describe the waters covering all the high mountains. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh, 
that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. And it's because of, of things like this that in the New Testament we read in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 that, that the flood of Noah is like a type of Christian baptism. And it's because of things like this that Paul will say in, in 1 Corinthians 10 that the people of Israel were baptized into Moses at the cloud and in the sea. They were baptized into Moses. What, what is being communicated here? Well, I think as, as we often, as I often say when people are baptized here, it's as though the waters are symbolizing God's wrath upon his enemies. And when he brings his people through the, the floodwaters of his wrath and brings them out alive, it, it's, it's like what, what happens when someone is united to Christ by faith. Someone turns away from their sin and trusts completely in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And because Jesus was baptized in the floodwaters of God's wrath when he died on the cross, Jesus said as he approached the cross, I have a baptism to undergo. Because he was baptized in the floodwaters of God's wrath, his experience of that wrath counts for us. And that is, what that is what is depicted when someone who is united to Christ by faith obeys Christ and goes under the waters of baptism, buried with him in baptism, and then raised, is raised up out of those waters to walk in newness of life. This is, this is why Paul and Peter are talking this way, because I think Moses means to connect the flood and the Red Sea, and on both occasions, God's people are saved through waters of wrath that killed their enemies. So if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer in Jesus, there is a great opportunity open before you. There's an opportunity for you to turn away from your sin, for you to place your hope in Christ, place all your faith in him, and to, to have it such that his experience of God's wrath counts for you, which means that no wrath remains for you. It means that you are free. You, you are declared righteous. So the waters returned, verse 28, and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. No sinner will escape God's justice. The only way to escape God's justice is to have Christ satisfy it for you. Verse 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 30, thus Yahweh saved Israel that day. Verse 25, at the end of the verse, the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 27, at the end of the verse, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. And look at how they respond here at the end of verse 31. So the people feared Yahweh and believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. The people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I think the, 
the response that we all ought to come away from this passage is, is natural, isn't it? Fear the Lord. Believe the Lord. And believe in his servant. And, and the role that Moses plays here is a role that will be uh, picked up and played by other characters across the Old Testament until the one comes to whom they all point. And, and that's the servant of the Lord that we're to believe in. We want to fear the Lord, believe the Lord, and believe the servant, the Lord Jesus. And we must do it before it's too late. We don't want to be those who, we come to church on Sunday and we say, oh yeah, we fear the Lord. We fear the Lord. But then, when temptation comes, we essentially declare, I'm not afraid of him. He's not a danger to me. We don't want to be those who, we, we sit here and we, we reflect on a passage like this and we say, yes, he's frightful, he's dangerous, he's, he's holy, and we should respond to him in fear. But then difficulties arise. And we essentially say, why did you bring us out in the desert to kill us when that is no part of his purpose? He brought them out into the desert and he got them into that, that place between a rock and a hard place to display his glory. That's why he brought them out into the wilderness. We want to be those who know him. We want to be those who find ourselves in difficulty and we begin to think to ourselves, this is going to be good. Something good is going to come out of this. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know how he's going to do it. But this is going to be awesome. That's how we want to learn to respond. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord. And in his servant Moses. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for having these things written for our instruction. And Lord, we thank you that, that the message is so consistent. And Father, we pray that you would cause the people of Israel, whom Paul says they're examples for us, that we should not be like them. They're, they're, they're types for us. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to learn these lessons. Teach us not to desire evil, Lord. Teach us not to, not to engage in idolatry and sexual immorality and not to grumble. Lord, teach us to trust you, to fear you. Make us like Job, who understood that the fear of you, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And Father, if there, if there are those here today whom you are drawing to yourself, people who have not yet publicly identified as followers of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you give them boldness, courage, strengthen their resolve, not to, not to harden their hearts, but, Lord, we pray that you would make it so that their hearts are alive. Make it so that they can't not publicly declare 
that you are their Savior through Christ. Make them eager to go into the waters of baptism, to identify with the Lord Jesus, that the satisfaction of your wrath on him might count for them. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the account of this glorious passage of Israel through the Red Sea. Help us to sing now like the saved. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.